Yeah, it's I, I flipped it and basically uh, went back to first principles, aka you know grandmother's wisdom. Like if we care about like the customers being happier, why don't we just measure that, right? Or we care about like X, you know, result. Let's start there, right? And if we start from there, right? Like all of a sudden, it just changes that first principle approach. Just changes everything. It's like. You start to look at most of the processes and approaches that we have, whether it's in developing products, marketing and sales and whatever, and you see that because we've become so derivative, they're insane. They actually make no sense. You're listening to the show for people who empower other people to do their best work. I'm Jay Akunzo, and this is Org Uncharted. Hello once again, and welcome to the show that believes, I think, what you believe. We believe in putting the customer first, in making decisions from the bottom up, and in fighting against top-down leadership. This is the official podcast from Tetra, which makes knowledge management and sharing software for modern, fast-growing teams. Tetra has also collected all kinds of great company culture decks for our show website, so you can go to orguncharted.com and check out the behind the scenes of how companies like Buffer, Google, GitHub, Lululemon, and a lot more are building thriving cultures. That's orguncharted.com. My friend, people are just so much more than little shapes on an org chart. So much more. So it's time we actually treated them like that and ventured beyond the org chart to explore today's theme, pushing beyond pushing. Here's the deal. We hear these phrases a lot when it comes to team management and motivation, carrots and sticks. And I'm sure you've heard those words applied to leadership before. The carrot, of course, is a reward and the stick, obviously, a punishment, carrots and sticks. And this idea of these two divergent approaches to team motivation has been in use for decades, with some citations dating back to the 1940s. This idea seems harmless enough at first. Sometimes people need the promise of rewards, sometimes the threat of punishment, in order to motivate in their work. But put aside the fact that lots of psychological studies and authors have largely discredited this idea, and instead, let's focus for a moment on the origin of the phrase itself and how that changes our beliefs as leaders. Think about the phrase, carrots and sticks. Gee, what comes to mind when you hear those phrases? I mean, what's become lost in the jargon? How about the fact that the original story is about a boy trying to motivate a donkey? Is that what influences our thinking as leaders today, viewing people like donkeys? I mean, even if that thought never enters somebody's mind at work, I'd argue that the very fact that this is the originating notion has echoes throughout time that still shapes our leadership behavior in terrible ways in the corporate world. And okay, maybe the carrot doesn't sound so bad, you know, a little hummus on the side would be kind of nice, some sliced peppers and celery, and, and you have the makings of a nice little appetizer. But then there's that damn stick in the mix. I mean, what the actual hell? I mean, in this metaphor, the stick is used to smack somebody forcibly to drive them forward. It's that idea of constantly pushing people to motivate. But did you ever notice that when you're pushed too hard, it's just not all that motivating unless you actually believe in where you're going, unless you feel a pull towards the destination? I mean, we all wanna see our companies succeed, I get that, but a lot of times the mile markers on the journey towards success feel a little arbitrary. 
You know, every day we get pushed to hit deadlines and reach benchmarks to ship this project or that one. And yet the rationale around that work isn't always clear. And whether due to outdated thinking or lots of pressure put on ourselves as leaders, whatever the case might be, sometimes when those screws tighten, we turn to the stick instead. So that brings us back to today's theme, pushing beyond pushing. There must be a better way to lead. I don't like being told what to do. I don't like being pushed myself. That's David Cancel, co-founder and CEO of Drift. The former Queens native and current Bostonian has founded five different tech companies in his career, several of which were acquired. And the last one, Performable, was acquired by the marketing tech giant HubSpot, which installed Cancel as their chief product officer. And there, he helped turn around a product that was hemorrhaging customers and position that business to go public. HubSpot is now worth over $4 billion. Today, he's building Drift, which makes, in their words, conversational marketing software, including a flagship product, a chatbot, for marketing, sales, and support teams to speak directly to website visitors. David comes from an engineering background, and when he first made the transition from engineer to leader, he says pushing was the only way he knew how to lead. There was a time where we didn't have access to the world's information, where you couldn't just uh, watch a YouTube video from a famous leader or a speaker, right? like where information was actually hard to get. And so I grew up in that world. And in that world, uh, trying to become a leader and learning how to manage teams the only role models and playbooks that we had was to read books that at the time were mostly written by Jack Welsh and, and lots of other Fortune you know, 100 or Fortune 50 CEOs who were famous at the time that almost can never be applied to a startup for sure, but even a, a smaller you know, non-global company that they were leading. But these were the only lessons that existed. There were no other lessons. So in that world, uh, I ended up learning the only way I could, which was through trial and failure and through reading some of those books and trying to apply, you know, whether it was Jack Jack Welsh or Andy Grove in high output management and some of that stuff. And I found that it led to me creating environments that were very prototypical. They were top down command and control, kind of like, here's the plan and here's how we're going to roll out the plan. And it ended up being, and I think most companies still operate this way, being a push, right? So you're always trying to push people within your company to achieve some goal for the company, ideal, you know. It's always revenue, but some revenue goal that you have for the company, but you're always figuring out ways to push, push, push people. For David, this whole push culture thing didn't really jibe with who he was or how he wanted to lead. So he decided to create a whole new culture himself, one that he called a pull culture. But what does that really mean? And more importantly, what does it entail to create it? Well, David says that he begins by figuring out what motivates his people. He discovers what they each want to learn, what big challenges they want to tackle, or what they want to achieve in their careers, and once he figures that out, he gears their work around it. David has found that when people are motivated by personal goals instead of business ones, they become superpowered. They begin to pull the business forward. They have this own momentum as an individual in their career that, that does indeed pull the rest of the team or the company and the results along with them. So what if we also wanted to create a culture based on the motivational principles that David Cancel espouses? What if we wanted to build a company full of supercharged individuals, all of whom feel empowered, all of whom pull the business along? We'll learn about that after the break. So speaking of push versus pull, 
I think when somebody pushes their team as a leader, it's because they believe they have all the answers, the, the information to do the job well, and now they're asking the team to carry out their mandate or their ideas. But I think the modern way of doing leadership, the best way to get the best work from your team is to share all the information, all the context that you have in making decisions. That way, teams can decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong because you're trusting them to do that work. They're on the front line speaking to customers. They're the talented people that you brought into the organization. We should all have access to the right information that we need to do our jobs well. In doing so, we might create a pull culture. And that's exactly why Tetra has created their product, a knowledge management software for fast-growing teams. Tetra is a place where you can make better decisions faster as a team because it's a place to put and share your information, your knowledge for doing your work. So if you believe what we believe on this show, and if you're interested in checking out more about their product, visit Tetra's website at tetra.co. That's tetra with two T's dot C-O. And now back to the show. We're in uncharted territory now, so let's dive even deeper. Let's push on further into this idea of a pull culture and try to take with us a few treasures, a few gems that have floated to the bottom here that we've distilled from David Cancel. So now we can go back to our work and execute better. So if you want to assemble an all-star team of highly motivated, supercharged people, where do you even start? David says that he begins the moment he meets a potential new employee during the interview process. And he's got a really unusual but refreshing take on interviews. It all starts with recruiting, right? And so what we're looking for when we're recruiting people are people that are, one, eager to learn, which is our core kind of principle, right? It's the thing that's the same about all of us. Luckily, most people in the world now, especially the younger they are, the more they are obsessed with personal progression. So this is a, this one's an easy one. It's actually harder with some of us older older folks because you get stuck in your ways. And uh, and so you want to progress, you want to learn. And what we try to figure out is one that they have that trait or that desire. And two, that do we have the opportunity, the right context here, the right challenge that will put them in a role where they can achieve that. Right. And sometimes it's it's hard because the more introverted, the more, the you know, my engineers, the more, you know, that's harder for that personality type to express maybe what they want to learn or how they want to progress. So it's actually harder than it sounds. So it takes work trying to tease that out in the recruitment process. But once we know it or we have a vague idea of it, we try to align their mission within the company with that thing that will overlap with that personal regression. Because what I found, and I found that by accident, was when those two things overlap, then this pull model begins and this magic happens because all of a sudden this individual is all in is consumed with whatever the task is at hand, not because they're trying to just necessarily hit a number for the company or, you know, get something shipped or not, but because this is moving them forward on their own personal progression. And that's when that passion kicks in. Okay, so I think as an individual, I would fit really well into this mold because I now have the ability and the self-awareness to articulate what I'm trying to do in my work. I've gone through enough ups and downs where I know I know what I believe in and you could really easily get me to talk about it. But for everybody else, for other people who that information isn't coming as freely, maybe they're introverted or they don't have that self-awareness yet in their careers. Are there any specific questions or exercises that you use that you can share with us now where you can pull that information out of them? Because it seems to me like without getting that information, the the pull approach to leadership won't actually work. 
super hard, right? It's hard to, to pull it out of people in theory, but it's actually pretty simple, right? And so I go back to grandma's uh, advice and, uh, and that is to pay attention to, you know, how people are reacting and what are they getting excited to uh, about. So let's talk about the interview process. In the interview process, a lot of times what I'm doing is I'm asking people, and, I, and I've trained other people to do this, we're asking people about random things that are related to both on the personal side and on the professional side. And what we're trying to do is we are trying to figure out and calibrate when that person is excited or not. And how do you know when someone is excited? It's pretty darn simple, right? You look at them, their eyes light up, they get engaged, they lean in, they start, especially if they're quieter, they start to to talk a lot about that subject area. And it's almost like a laboratory test, right? I'm, I'm going through lots of different things and the person on the other end doesn't know uh, until they listen to this that I'm necessarily doing this, but I'm just randomly having a conversation. They're waiting for me to ask them interview type questions, but I never do, right? I'm just asking them lots of random questions and I'm seeing, okay, now Jay's nodding off. Okay, now he's disinterested. Now he's uh, not leaning in. Okay, I mentioned podcasting. He just, he just woke up. His eyes lit up. He can't stop talking about it. Okay, I'm going to go on to something else. Uh, now we're going to talk about, you know, process and blah, blah, blah. Okay, he's asleep again. And so it's more that I'm less listening for the answer that they have, and I'm more watching them and observing them, right? And when I tell people this, they're like, oh, this is crazy. Oh, how do you do that? And it's like, no, this is the most basic thing that all of us have, right? Uh, Jay is married. If Jay's wife is angry at him, uh, he does not need to have a survey uh, filled out by her. He could probably see her from, you know, uh, four city blocks, Manhattan city blocks away. And you could be like, okay, she's mad, right? You don't need, and it's that simple. But people overcomplicate things, right? They over like think, well, how am I going to know? How do I quantify it? It's, it's actually very simple. If you start doing this in the interview process, you'll start to notice. If you start getting, stop getting wrapped up in the necessary the words that they're saying, and you start actually feeling and looking at how they're reacting and just listening for the signs, you can see excited, not excited, interested, not interested. And by that, that's how I tease out what they might be passionate about, even if they can't express it yet. This is helping me explain to myself one of my favorite questions that I ever asked when I hired writers, which was, and I think this could apply to a lot of makers in a different flavor, but I would ask two different questions that would reveal this stuff. I never knew that's what I was doing, but I knew that I got good information. One question was, if I handed you two years worth, or I was promising you two years worth of salary, and you you had to earn this by doing one thing, which was write a blog, a side project, about anything at all in the world, what would you write about? And if they said, you know, they're, they're working at a marketing team, they'd say, well, I'd really like write about the evolution of SEO. No, you wouldn't. You're pandering to me. Yeah, yeah. It's nonsense. What I wanted to see wasn't what they said, to your point. It was how they reacted. Did they light up and have a visceral reaction and start to just almost like I'm doing now, rant about something in an excited way? Or give you some generic nonsense answer, right? Exactly. That, that reveals something about the person. Yeah, and that's why it's super important to to kind of almost step back from the words that people are saying, especially the smarter the, the candidate is or uh, the closer they are to sales, uh, the, the more they're going to be. And even outside of sales, I'll take that away. Like the smarter they are, more polished they are, the more they're going to want to take you on a specific track, right? Some talk track that they have. 
And the more they're going to want to keep coming back to whatever polished set of answers that they have, right? Because it's an interview process. They're in interview mode and they're selling themselves whether they think so or not, right? Everyone wants to be liked. And so you have to separate yourself from that. And, that, and so one of my other things that I was doing in that process is that I won't let people go off on their little, their speeches, right? Whatever prepared thing, as soon as I feel like they're going down a talk track that they want to get into, right? Like uh, that seems like well rehearsed, even if they haven't done it specifically or not, I will break it and I will distract them and go off somewhere else, right? And so I just need to break them from the nonsense uh, and those generic answers. Like I would write a blog post about SEO and actually get to the truth about who is this person. All right, so quick aside, here's what I'm learning about this, this poll model. You have to get to the truth about the person, about your team. You have to figure out what really motivates each individual, and then you drive their work around their goals. I mean, what a refreshing take. It's a hard truth to swallow for many corporations that want cogs in a wheel. It's not historically how we've built businesses, but I think it is indeed how you get the best work from people. You customize the work around their goals, not the company goals. And in doing so, the company goals get met better. But how do you do that in a way that benefits the business and actually works in the corporate world? That's what I asked David. I want to move to this idea, the way you encapsulate this pull model, which you call servant leadership, and, and the two pillars that you talk often about um, as signs that servant leadership is perpetuating around your company, uh, autonomous teams and accountable individuals. So, and autonomous individuals of that. So autonomy and accountability. So let, let's get super tactical. Can you point to anything at Drift where you'd say, look, this is how our people are both autonomous and accountable? You can see it clearly compared to other other people or teams? Like what would you point to at Drift specifically? I always point to the the hardest one for most companies, which is um, engineering, you know, software engineering, right? And, and so one thing that I try to do there is we try to push autonomy and decision-making about, for instance, you know, at HubSpot, last company I was part of, and then this company, I had this belief and uh, where we don't have roadmaps. Uh, we don't have dates for when we're going to release something from a product and engineering standpoint. And that always drove people crazy to, to think about that. What I replaced that with, and that was the give. So that was the autonomy. Now team, engineering team, product team, I've taken away roadmaps. I've taken away the burden of dates. And so I'm giving you the autonomy for you to decide when something is ready to go out. I'm giving you the autonomy for you to decide how you prioritize what you work on this month versus last month versus next week, whatever. You make all those decisions. No one's going to make those decisions for you. But the flip side of that is you have to have the equal amount of accountability. Now I'm going to start to measure you in customer terms. You will no longer get credit for, I shipped this on X date. Uh, we worked on it this long. Uh, we have this many uh, points from an agile methodology standpoint associated to something. Those no longer mean anything. What means something is uh, this product has generated this much revenue. This, these customers broken down by cohort are, are happy because of this thing that we did this month. Our internal customers, sales, support, marketing, customer success are happier because we are addressing X, Y, Z month over month and making the product better. So now you have that accountability. And I find that when everyone wants autonomy, uh, but everyone, usually everyone's definition of autonomy is anarchy, right? They want autonomy, but they want no accountability. 
and that doesn't exist, right? That's an, that's anarchy. That's not autonomy. Autonomy comes with the responsibility to have that accountability for your actions. And I think this is reasoning from first principles where a lot of metrics, a lot of metrics in the business world, in any department for any role, they're built on the assumption that, look, this is our proxy for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, all the way down until you get to the customer. And what you're saying is, no, 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 start at the customer, build back up your metrics from around that. So points at some in some echoed way, somehow get back to, well, points lead to this many things shipping and this much productivity and this type of product and on and on and on until you're like, and happy customers who buy and refer people. So you're like, well, why don't we just start at that and reverse engineer it from there instead of starting so distantly from the customer? Yeah, it's I, I flipped it and basically uh, went back to first principles, aka, you know, grandmother's wisdom. Like if we care about like the customers being happier, why don't we just measure that? Right. Or we care about like X, you know, result. Let's start there. Right. And if we start from there, right, like all of a sudden it just changes that first principle approach just changes everything. It's like you start to look at most of the processes and approaches that we have, whether it's in developing products, marketing and sales and whatever. And you see that because we become so derivative, they're insane. They actually make no sense. They shouldn't work. And then we're surprised when they don't work, but they shouldn't work, right? Because they're like so removed. They're like 10 steps away from the actual thing that you're trying to affect. Right. It's like the customer is super mad. The, the VP is kind of disappointed in the progress. The sales team is, 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 you know, angling for some kind of update. Or if you're in marketing, some piece of collateral, there's like people are pissed, but you're like, yeah, but look at this metric that I have. I'm doing well, aren't I? And it's like, no, you, you lost sight of this stuff. It's crazy. It's we've reached peak insanity and kind of letting everyone just choose whatever metric that they want to use. And uh, which was always, you know, one of my rants, which is, you know, people were like, oh, we're data driven. It's like, yeah, but if I can pick any metric that I want, I can tell you any make believe story. That's not data driven that I can just pick whatever uh, metric and show you whatever chart I want. It's uh, the old. What is it? The uh, what's that show? Portlandia. Put a bird on it. No, you just put Put a number on it. No, that's not data driven. Just say just because you put a number against what you're talking about to justify it doesn't make you actually driven by the data. <laughs> exactly. It's a crazy, but everyone does it. And you're like, are we in, is everyone insane? Are we insane? What's happening? <laughs> grandma's wisdom. So putting grandma aside, are there people at Drift or in your career that you can mention, uh, maybe even by name, give them a nice little shout out that you think have really thrived with this pull model? Like how have you seen their careers unfold? What have they done better? And how have they been unleashed, so to speak, because of this approach? Yeah, I think lots of them, lots of people that we've worked with, the two of us in the past, right? Uh, whether it's like Megan Kenny Anderson, who's VP of marketing over at HubSpot now. You know, we worked together at Performable uh, before we were acquired and went in there. And so I think she's a perfect example of it. Uh, Elias, my co-founder, is a perfect example. Dave Gerhardt, who runs marketing here, is a perfect example of it. I mean, I'm surrounded by an endless number of these people that are you know, by their own motivation, been able to, you know, progress leaps and bounds. Uh, and it's been because they've been able to, one, put their pride to the side, right, and show some humility and be coachable. And two, because they brought their own motivation, and their own hunger to want to prove something and do something, and they've all been able to achieve amazing things. But I have a long list, and I'm, I'm proud to have worked with all of those people at different points in history and, uh, and see their progression.
All right, we ventured away from the org chart on this episode, away from the typical push culture, and we dove deep into creating a pull approach to leadership where everybody is motivated in all the right ways. But we can't empower others like that in our careers without others first empowering us. So let's now hear from David Cancel about the person or people that he would like to thank, the, the intrepid explorer who empowered him to do his best work. I had many mentors in my life, virtual and real. And I have three three of my earliest mentors that I'd like to thank. And they all have they all they're all named Sam, right? First one is named Sam Lee, and I worked for him. I worked in a warehouse when I was in high school and college. He was my first mentor, right? He taught me. He was a businessman in New York City, owned a bunch of uh, B2B businesses, but it more in the uh, warehousing and um, retail side of things. And so I worked for him, and he taught me a lot, uh, and I owe a lot to him. I, I look back and think about many of the lessons I learned, I actually learned through him. My second mentor uh, Sam Walton, virtual mentor, founder of uh, Walmart, and by his book, Made in America, which I've read about six times. He's my next mentor. Uh, and he he's taught me a lot. And I continue to reference back to him and what he's learned. Uh, and then my um, the last Sam is named Sam Zales. And he's the COO of a company called Car Gurus, just went public here in Boston. And, uh, and I worked with him. I started working with him 18 years ago. And Sam has taught me the importance of people, right? We This whole podcast is about people. Many of these lessons that I've learned around how to properly uh, lead came from Sam, right? And he was, I was the prototypical engineer and he was the people-oriented leader. And he taught me a lot around uh, most of what we talk about today. Big thanks to David Cancel, Uncle DC, with all that wisdom today. If you liked what he said as much as I did, say hi on Twitter, at DCancel. I got to shout out Tetra one last time because this is their show. They're not sponsoring it. It is their show. They're making it with me. And it's just awesome to see a company that gives a damn about great leadership. Again, Tetra helps you make better decisions in less time as a team by sharing knowledge more freely and openly together. So you can check them out at tetra.co, tetra with two t's.co, or visit the show site that we built together. It's orguncharted.com, and that contains all kinds of company culture decks, employee handbooks, more podcast episodes, interviews with leaders in text format, you name it, orguncharted.com. This show is a production of Unthinkable Media, makers of refreshingly entertaining shows about work. It's hosted by me, Jay Akunzo, and produced by Annie Sinzaba. Thank you, Annie, for your help today. So on behalf of Tetra, thank you so, so much for listening to this show. I will talk to you next time in two weeks on another episode of Org Uncharted. Uncharted.